Hi, I'm Neil Stavum. Here's the podcast for Connecting Faith. Enjoy the conversation. Real conversations about how we live out our faith every day. Welcome to Connecting Faith. Great to have you along today. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Neil Stavum, uh, Ted Ross at the Controls. And uh, Ted, normally we don't uh, spend a lot of time here in Connecting Faith talking anatomy. No. No. Yeah, so. <laughs> Are we going to do that today? Um, yeah, not so much. Okay. No, no well, <laughs> not... Uh, not in the way we're thinking not about in the right way, now. Yes, right. Okay, yes. and we're going to... But uh, the fact is that uh, many people probably aren't thinking uh, clearly when it comes to uh, strengthening and keeping their marriage is strong. So we're going to talk about Anatomy of an Affair. Hmm. It's a uh, updated book from uh, Dave Carter, who's been our guest in the past. I'm looking forward to connecting with him, and, and we'll do that in a moment. I do want to mention that uh, we've got a, a great resource been given away this month, and I don't know if you've had a chance to sign up for it yet, but if you go to our website, myfaithradio.com, you can sign up for uh, being the drawing for a copy of The Satisfied Soul. It's a devotional from John Piper. It's 120 devotions that celebrate God's sovereignty in every aspect of our lives. That's great. I'm sure that's one of the steps in protecting yourself from making sinful choices like we're going to be talking about is staying close to God, staying connected. And we're giving away a couple copies each week. And so you can visit MyFaithRadio.com to enter to win The Satisfied Soul. And I hope that your relationship, your you and your spouse are in a, a wonderful season of satisfaction because that is uh, going to go a long way toward uh, keeping you from affairs. And the reality is that, you know, those that think, well, it never happened to me are uh, maybe most vulnerable. So yeah. let's uh, dig in and find out, talk anatomy of an affair, how affairs, attractions, and addictions develop, and how to guard your marriage against them. Never say never is the word that we're going to going to start with today and to welcome back Dave Carter's pastor of counseling ministries at First Evangelical Free Church of Fulton, California. His specialty is adultery recovery and prevention for which he's appeared on multiple TV shows and done training all around the country. And he's written several books, including Torn Asunder, Recovering from an Extramarital Affair, Close Calls, What Adulterers Want You to Know About Protecting Your Marriage. And in this new book, Anatomy Affair, is a, a Kind of an updated version of close calls, and we just uh, always look forward to chatting with Dave. Just a great insight and advice and encouragement. Dave, welcome back to Connecting Faith. Well, thanks, Neil. Look forward to it. Uh, let's. I guess I'm always curious to know a, a specialty in adultery recovery and prevention. I mean, you have been a counselor for a number of years. Did, did this specialty sort of become forced upon you, or is it something that you actually pursued as a area of study? Well, it was forced upon me because uh, when my second of three pastors uh, ran off with another woman in the church, uh, two out of three, I decided to go back to graduate school, get a psych degree, and pursue this. I I was on a mission. I was going to figure this out, what the risk factors are, how to stop it, and uh, do away with it. Because at that time, I was a young seminary grad, maybe eight years into ministry, and I'd had multiple pastoral leadership friends fail and fall. This is, and you know, we think, well, uh, anybody is susceptible, but we think, well, those in ministry maybe, you know, would have a less chance. But the fact is, as you say, never say never. Yeah, yeah. Well, we surveyed 4,000 pastors over 10 years uh, when I got out of grad school, joined a little research team, and uh, it it was very insightful. I learned a lot on that journey, I'll tell you. So I share some of it in the book here. What are the... uh 
maybe the percentages or maybe some of the statistics in terms of marriages that have been affected or maybe are affected by affairs? Well, it depends on what survey you read, of course, but most uh, surveys would reflect somewhere around 40% of Christian marriages end up experiencing uh, an affair or sexual other form of sexual betrayal. And about two-thirds of men in America and about 50% or so of women acknowledge that they've been uh, in an affair or some other relationship inappropriate to their marriage. And uh, the, the other statistic that's so shocking is somewhere between 75% of men and 68% of women in America who responded to surveys said they would have an affair if they thought they could get away with it and not get caught. That's that's the real kicker. Wow. Our, uh, maybe we should just define terms a little bit. We've you know, joked a little bit about anatomy, which is you know, it's a captivating title, anatomy of an affair. But so are the words uh, affair and adultery synonymous? Well, any kind of sexual betrayal feels the same to the betrayed partner. I don't care whether it's sex with somebody else. If it's just pornography, you're watching somebody else. Uh, somebody else touches your spouse's uh, uh, genitals or private parts and gives them some happy endings and a massage part, it all feels the same to the betrayed spouse. And as a result, it breaks the ability to be close, to trust, to feel respected. And the outcomes are the same no matter what the behavior is. You do talk about uh, some, uh, I guess, um, caliber of affairs. Maybe just talk a little yeah, about that. Classes, yeah, classes, yeah. Well, uh, you know, when I started in this, <laughs> I was a seminary graduate. I, I knew nothing about psychology, really, or anything how to treat people like this. And so I just assumed adultery was adultery was adultery. But when I got into the scriptures, looking at it through the lenses of sexual betrayal, this stuff's been around for centuries, thousands of years. You know, we have the one night stand, the class one, David and Bathsheba. Uh, that class two, a, a deeply e- intense emotional relationship. We have that in Samson and Delilah. He could not stay away from that woman, even though he knew she was trying to kill him. I mean, you have to be half crazy to be that addicted to somebody that you know they're going to kill you, but you can't stay away. So like a, some kind of a, a spider thing or something. <laughs> uh, third, we got sexual addiction, that class three. And Eli, the prophet, had two sons who would take women into tents, have sex with them, and release them. Didn't even know them, really. And God told Eli to stop that practice, and he didn't. So God killed the two sons, and God killed Eli prematurely. And then the fourth class, what we call an add-on affair, the marriage is intact. It's not a threat to the marriage. But um, I was making this presentation to a group of pastors, about six, 800 of them down in Florida, I said, I don't have a biblical illustration of this. I went through the characteristics and criteria. A pastor in the back of the auditorium stood up and shouted, well, that's Abraham and Hagar. An add-on, it meets an unmet need or a a void in the marital relationship. And uh, do what you want to about that, but I thought that was a great illustration. And then class five only started in 1995. And that's what we call a reconnective uh, situation where it's quite different than the others. It, the emotional bond is very intense, and it's where you go back on Facebook and find an old girlfriend or boyfriend out of adolescence or out of college, and you never forget those 
early romances. Never. The infatuation doesn't have to be developed. It's already stored in your brain through the memories that you have of that relationship and that person. And I don't care if they gained 100 pounds and are bald-headed and big fat. It doesn't make any difference. When you're talking to them on the phone, you're transported back to adolescent years in that relationship you had. Very dangerous. Uh, and you said it really didn't start till 1995. I mean, we, I, I assume there were maybe reconnections before that, but not to the extent, obviously, what social media has, has perpetrated. Yeah, not right? as easy. Yeah. 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 And they were much more random and uh, surprising, maybe through reunions or something. But sure. now you can sit down at your home computer and after a couple thousand hits, you'll find them. <laughs> you know, you, you were talking about, about Samson. Said, "Yeah, he must have been half crazy." Is that? I mean, is that? Uh, I mean, sort of jokingly, but are, when when we sort of be, go down this road, are we in fact maybe becoming half crazy? Oh yeah, yeah. You're drunk with infatuation. That's what you're. You're drunk with it. You're you're making stupid decisions. You're saying stupid things. Uh, you'll look back on it later on and say, "What in the world was?" I think in during that time, uh, you, you'll try to get out of it, and you found you, you can't. Sometimes people have to uh, need medication. It's like a, a dual diagnosis in addiction. They, they just they can't stop. They, they stay away. Then they call, how you doing? Are you okay? And boom, they start over again. That intermittent reinforcement kind of kicks in. Well, it's interesting because you, uh, you talk in the subtitle books how affairs, attractions, and addictions develop. I mean, this... Is is this uh, tied in with uh, addiction like maybe any other sort of chemical addiction? Oh, yeah. Any mood-altering experience can become an addiction. And whether it's exercise or coffee or uh, medication, prescription drugs, doesn't make any difference. Cigarettes, all of those are mood-altering experiences. And what happens when you begin to develop friendships with members of the opposite sex uh, through work or maybe through ministry or maybe through working out the gym or maybe you belong to a hiking club and your spouse doesn't like the outdoors and you build this relationship and pretty soon it begins to d- develop a mood change in you. You begin to look forward to seeing them. You you have a little brighter response. They send you a text or an email and suddenly you feel much less uh, afraid or anxious or upset or stressed out and it's a great distraction. All, I guess I'll say this. All first-time affairs are about two things. All of them are comfort and distraction. Always, always, always. Hmm. You know, speaking of comfort, I know uh, I know that I noted it before, but you talk about, you know, men look at uh, uh, sex as comfort. Is, is, so that's a, a, a strong driver for a, a man pursuing this, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's the biochemical stuff that kicks in when you in an orgasm. All the oxytocin and those chemicals that make you feel you're at peace with the world. Oxytocin is a bonding hormone. And men, men's highest collection of that hormone is when they have sex with someone they feel loves them. Now, it's quite different with women. Women's highest levels of oxytocin come when they're nursing a child. Now, that's a good thing because if that hadn't happened, we probably wouldn't have a whole lot of second-born children on the planet. <laughs> But they feel like this is so wonderful and I'm bonded with this child and I feel so lovey and close. And But they often neglect hubby during this time because they're satisfied emotionally and chemically with this oxytocin level of uh, hormone. So that's the, the comfort side. You said the other uh, factor is distraction. So give yeah, us an yeah. example of that. 
Uh, okay, the research on this started back in the 70s, and you can Google it. It's called Misattribution of, a, of um, Attraction. So uh, this research, would you like to hear the research? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, this researcher built two footbridges that people can walk across, and they had a, a, a visual barrier between the two of them. The first, they're identical, but the first bridge was really bolted down tight. Guy wires were tight. The second bridge that was identical had loose guy wires and loose bolts. It wasn't going to fall down, but it was very shaky and very unsteady walking across that. He brought in 20 college guys, had them walk across the steady bridge one at a time, stationed at the end of the bridge with an, uh, an average-looking college co-ed, and they rated her attractiveness. He brought them back again uh, to the other bridge. They, they looked identical. They started walking across. It was very shaky, very unsteady. They were having to hold on so they didn't fall down. He put the same college co-ed at the end of the bridge and the same attraction evaluation. That woman was statistically significantly more beautiful after they walked across the shaky bridge than when they saw her after walking across the steady bridge. Sex is all about distraction. It's all about solving stress, eliminating pressure. You get in this little world with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and you forget about everything else. It's an escape. Insight from uh, David Carter, uh, David's uh, pastor of Counseling Ministries at First Evangelical Free Church of Fulcher in California. He's uh, written a number of books, appears on on major uh, media and writes in magazines and journals. We're talking about his latest, uh, Anatomy of an Affair, how affairs, attractions, and addictions develop, and how to guard your marriage against them. And we'll dive into those important steps as well. How do we guard our marriage against them? Great insight today from Dave Carter. We've got a copy of the book to give away, and we'd love to make sure that uh, you could get this great resource. Maybe it's uh, someone that you know and care about, that you have some concerns about. Say This would be an important read. Uh, invite you to just call in. They give us a, a, a contact information. We'll put you in the drawing for that. 877-933-2484. 877-93-FAITH. If you have a question, do you want to join us so you can be anonymous? If that is uh, more comfortable for you, be happy to have you uh, join the conversation. Or you could submit a note online as well. You go to myfaithradio.com, click on the Connecting Faith show page, and there's an email tab right there. I'll get you right into the studio with your question or comment. And we look forward to hearing from you in the moments ahead as we talk more with Dave Carter on Connecting Faith. Good news is that uh, maybe we see damage and brokenness, but God uh, is uh, God is the restorer, the renewer, and He can mend uh, broken hearts. And we're talking about how we can guard our marriage against affairs, but uh, getting some uh, clear understanding about how they happen. And uh, we want to make sure that we're not in that uh, "it'll never happen to me" category because uh, we may be most vulnerable. Then, Dave Carter who has been married for now 51 years with the four children and eight grandchildren at least. I haven't, I guess, caught up to see if there's any new ones since that time. But you can find out more about Dave, the great resources available on his website, Dave Carter, C-A-R-D-E-R, DaveCarter.com. The book we're referencing is called Anatomy of an Affair. 
Uh, Dave, you do talk about uh, the the close call marriage. Let's talk about the the close calls. What does that mean? Well, uh, close calls happen in a culture where men and women uh, intermingle constantly. And uh, I'm not against that, but you need to realize that uh, if you're active in that culture, you will uh, at times develop an admiration for someone or uh, uh, respect for someone or an attraction to someone other than your spouse. That's just bound to happen. In fact, I say to people all the time, if that doesn't happen to you, you're either dead or in denial because <laughs> there's a lot of wonderful people out there that share a lot of similarities that you have, but that you don't share with your spouse. And so the process, though, is very subtle. And uh, it, it starts out with this mood-altering experience we kind of alluded to earlier. Your day brightens when you see this person. You look forward to the shared ministry together. Uh, you maybe see him at the gym, and the smile is, is very important to you. And you kind of think, oh, I wish my wife would smile at me like that all the time. That would just be so helpful. It's very innocent, but it becomes a mood-altering experience. And as that mood uh, continues to increase, you might even find yourself dressing for it. You might find yourself cultivating it, uh, trying to create more opportunities to be with this person. But then there's another threshold you step over, and that is the threshold of the conversational change. It changes from what's external and outside of you to what's internal and going on inside of you, how you're feeling about things. And when you step across that threshold, you are really in danger. You need to run, baby, run, because this will continue to develop, and it will, it will take you down. But anyway, what happens at that point is you begin to starve the marriage, and you feed the friendship. And you want it to be in your life. You want to see this person. And as you do that, it becomes kind of a secret stash, something you can store and go back to, and you know it's always going to work. It's always going to provide you relief. It's always going to raise your mood. It's always going to make you feel better, just like any mood-altering substance. And when that happens, you're trapped. You're caught. And uh, it, I've seen these kind of emotional affairs go on for 30 years. Once... I guess that's the question. Obviously, you can break off an affair. Uh, there can be recovery, but but the reality is that once you start down this path, it, it is uh, there's an inevitable conclusion, isn't it? If we uh, if we let All it go right. that way. Well, the emotional affair people they'll say to you all the time, oh, "We've done nothing wrong. We're just good friends." But what you have done wrong is you've robbed the marriage of developing a good friendship. You've developed this friendship outside the marriage. You're shared more emotional uh, of your internal world with this other person rather than your spouse. Like I said, you starved the marriage, you fed the friendship. And that's where the betrayal comes in. Uh, and if you don't think I'm kidding, if you think I'm just making this up, you try to separate people who claim they're just friends, but they've been friends for several years. They're just friends. Well, they're not. They're way more uh, cl close than they should be. And uh, th to separate them, you'll see the depression and the anger and the hostility and everything else that demonstrates that this is very painful to leave this person. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you use a phrase called a dangerous partner. And uh, maybe yeah. say a bit more about those, what that means. Well, a, a dangerous partner basically means we all have people 
out there in the world who are dangerous partners to us. And that is a potential. That doesn't mean tall, dark, and handsome, or blonde, blue-eyed, and whatever else. That doesn't mean that at all. What it means, and what we're talking about, are those bits and pieces of unmet need in your life over the years. For instance, uh, maybe there's a personality style that you've always admired, but it's always been a little threatening to you as well. And so you married somebody different, but you've always admired people who had this particular personality style. Maybe you have some hobbies and interests that your spouse doesn't share. And so you're immediately attracted to someone who has similar hobbies or similar interests. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a single mom home where mom was busy putting food on the table. You didn't get a lot of nurturance or care or, or sensitivity. Mom basically, you know, it's tougher where there's none, baby. Pick it up and let's go. We we got to make this work type of thing. So you never had that. So you yearn for it. Maybe you grew up in a home where dad was gone. Uh, and so you've never had a, a father figure that kind of brought you along or that you could bounce things off of or that seemed to be uh, – could be a kind of a mentor person to you. Uh, all of us have an internal age that we're attracted to. And you hear wives all the time say things like, well, I got four kids, three of them are under 10 and one's 35. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes people don't grow up and they continue to want to live in that adolescent world where they had very little responsibility. Uh, they didn't have to make money to kind of live a minimal experiences and they could focus on the fun of it. So those are the kinds of things that put together in one person's life can make attraction immediate, just immediate. Well, we got about a, you know, 90 seconds before we need to take a break, but you mentioned over okay. the years, are there, are there seasons when we are more susceptible to, to an affair? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's seasons within a marriage. For instance, uh, seasons of loss. You know, because spouses, loss initially brings spouses together, but eventually one spouse says, you know, I got to move on. I just can't keep stuck here. I mean, my job's demanding of the kids or whatever. But the other spouse hasn't moved on. And so they need somebody to talk to. And there they go. They go back to that person that they maybe have built this little friendship with over time. We also know that about 50% of all first-time affairs in America happen during pregnancy and the first year after delivery. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for that. You just kind of sit and figure it out. One, you know, the emotional focus changes. There might be a lot of nausea. And in the first three months, you don't feel like making love to your spouse if you're vomiting. So just there's a, a lot of emotional focus changes. I'm having this baby. Her shape changes. She's tired. Uh, She has these food cravings. They have this baby. There's sleep deprivation. There might even be some mandated bed rest involved in there. And don't forget the oxytocin Hmm. that floods her body every time she nurses that little baby. Uh, And her hubby, he is neglected many times. Let me. uh, There are seasons like that. We'll break in. We'll uh, pick that up and and more coming up here in the other half of the break. The other side, uh, Anatomy of Affair is uh, the conversation we're talking about. We've got a great book from Dave Carter that we're giving away. Love to have you sign up for it at 877-933-2484. Dave Carter, Pastor of Counseling Ministries, First Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton, joining us today on Connecting Faith. To you the truth is Marriage does not have to die I know you're feeling like it's falling apart And it can't go on in 
We're talking about uh, how to affair proof our marriage. It is possible that Dave Carter is with us, author of the best selling book, Torn Asunder, sought after expert on issues of adultery. He serves as a pastor of counseling ministries, First Evangelical Free Church in Fulton, California. I've been on a number of uh, media outlets and uh, written some wonderful resources, done a lot of wonderful study. You can find out more about all the uh, the resources and the writing at his website, Dave Carter, with a D, DaveCarter.com. Uh, they were talking just uh, before the break that uh, there are seasons. Uh, are there any seasons in a marriage where we're not uh, susceptible to an affair? Well, um, there's always seasons in a marriage where one of you might be less than delighted with the direction or the experience or the environment that's going on in your marriage currently. That you, life is difficult. I, I'm not the first to say that. So uh, you that that marriage fluctuates dramatically. If you just kind of assume you're safe and you assume your marriage would never experience anything like this and you just can't believe your spouse would ever do this, that we don't call that trust. We call that taking for granted what that your marriage is safe. So a, a really trusting relationship shares vulnerabilities and creates a safe environment where they can be shared and where we can work together to keep this thing uh, flexible and adjusting as needed for each of us so that we meet each other's needs. So if you're not engaged in that process, I would tell you that you're just in a fair waiting to happen. Mm. So when you talk about sharing, are you you saying, you know, if, if uh, you know, a business trip uh, was, was tempted uh, on the way or met somebody? I mean, are we, are we sharing those kinds of things? Uh, what are we talking about in terms of being vulnerable with each other? Well, uh, yes, yes and no. First of all, <laughs> you don't come home from this business trip and for the first time in your entire life tell your spouse, you know, I, I was really tempted to uh, go to this other woman's hotel room. You don't do that for the first time. You actually start your marriage. You develop a contract on the front end. And if you haven't done that already, uh, today would be a good day to do it. We live in a close call culture. You will be attracted to somebody other than your spouse just because of the mix of men and women serving, working, working out, playing together. That's just the name of the game. So if this attraction develops, if you have this contract in place that you will share it, if that attraction develops, you can share and and the contract basically says you promise not to get mad. You promise to listen with intent to kind of improve our relationship. Maybe it's highlighting a deficit that we both need to work on to adjust it. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that needs to be ch uh, challenged and the couples need to address. If you assume your spouse is never attracted to a member of the opposite sex, you're a fool. Uh, you've, I know uh, one of your books, Close Call, or the, I think the subtitle was uh, What Adulterers Want You to Know About Protecting Your Marriage. Yeah. Uh, do, yeah. Are there common things that the, they, they would say time and time again? I mean, other than, you know, you're a fool if you think it won't happen to you? Yeah, well, there are things like that. You know, when you talk about stress, when you talk about comfort, when you talk about uh, seasons where uh, you're less than satisfied in the marriage, when you talk about failure to build a relationship that lasts a lifetime. Uh, lots of parents focus on their kids uh, instead of on the marriage primarily. And as a result, you know, those kids go off to college or get married, and you sit down each other at the breakfast table, and you look across the table, and you say, who in the heck are you? And you've never spent any money on your marriage. Spend money on your marriage. And any time you do that, you'll have to 
steal it from your kids. They will never give it to you. <laughs> they won't say, oh, Mom and Dad, you've been working so hard at being good parents. Just why don't you go take a weekend away, and here's two or $300 to kind of get a room at the hotel and have a nice little bed and breakfast. They'll never do that. <laughs> and if you wait for it, it'll never happen. So you have to be proactive in this culture simply because of the intermingling that men and women have together, the secrets they can keep on cell phones, and the relationships that they're going to have just in shared ministry. Say more about ways that we can, I think you can describe it as reigniting passion. Uh, what are some uh, practical things oh, we can do there? Sure. Here's a fun exercise, and it's easy to do. Uh, each spouse agrees to do this, so each of you make a private list of what you think are the eight greatest moments in our relationship. It can happen in dating periods. It can happen in the marriage. It cannot be the wedding ceremony. It could be your honeymoon. It does not. You cannot put in the kids, the birth of the children, and you cannot put in their family vacations. You cannot put in there anything you've done with other couples. These are the eight greatest moments we've had with just the two of us. After you've got your list put together, you sit down and you talk about them. Most good marriages will have between three and five, usually four or five, that match. That's a great starting point. So let's say you have four that match. Okay, she gets number five, you get number six, she gets number seven, you get eight. That list is the best stuff you've ever done in a marriage. And most couples get in trouble because they don't continue to do what they do best. Yeah, I uh, I can't follow up on that uh, because it just <laughs> it just makes it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the, oh, this it does. this yeah. This isn't rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd like it to be sometime, I guess, though, wouldn't we? Yeah, so, yeah. Hmm. It just seems beyond us. But, you know, it, it takes cooperative effort on both your parts. It does. Yeah. But those are the mood-altering experiences. In fact, just reflecting on those eight items will change your mood about your spouse. I'll give you another one. Want another one? Sure. Okay. This got great research behind it. Two clinical psychologists, husband and wife team, uh, did, were specialists in behavior modification. And they spent their whole lives researching this across ages, genders, cultures, et cetera. So here's what you do. You get yourself a little notebook at the local drugstore. Each of you have one, a little wire spiral across the top. And every day for 30 days, and this is what the research required, 30 straight days. Every day you write a trait at the top of a page in that workbook, a little notebook, what you like about your spouse. Maybe they take showers, okay? Maybe they smile. <laughs> maybe they're a good parent. You know, maybe they cook a, a, a special meal for you. You don't put one meal in. Every day is a, a different item. You can never repeat. And then you put in two or three sentences about how you like that and why that's so important to you. And then for Christians, I encourage them as they lay in bed at night before they fall asleep, they share that day's trait with each other and in a prayer out loud to God. Dear God, I want to thank you for uh, Bill's uh, cleanliness and how good he smells when he gets out of the shower and the soap. I just love being close to him when I can smell that. Well, that's a great thing to say. And she, uh, he has one he has for her. And you pray that little simple prayer for 30 straight days. I'll promise you it will change your marriage. 
Dave, uh, what about the, uh, the those listening today who maybe a spouse has has gone down the road of infidelity? Uh, they're uh, they're wounded. Uh, trust has been broken. Uh, yeah. What what encouragement do you have for rebuilding that? Starting is it a, a starting well, over? No, no, no. You should never leave a marriage after adultery. Although I will say this. The, the whole field of adultery recovery is only 25 years old. There's not a lot of evidence-based treatment programs out there. But those of us who work in the field will basically tell you this. To the degree that the betrayed spouse can forgive, to that degree he or she can start rebuilding respect. And to the degree she rebuilds respect, she can start to rebuild trust. And to the degree she rebuilds trust, she can rebuild love if she wants to. So it goes forgiveness, respect, trust, and love. And it's going to take some work. You've got to figure out why this happened at this time with this person. And hopefully you've got enough good history that will support you through this recovery. Research has identified if you don't have some good history to fall back on at this time in your marriage after adultery, it's going to be hard for you to make it because this is not a good time to build good history in a bad relationship. Can you, uh, I mean, you've you've been involved in uh, church ministry for years. Obviously, it's kind of what prompted you to get in this area after experiencing uh, the difficulties in a, you know, a loss in pastors. But can, uh, you know, can an outside observer or maybe, a, you know, a small group or just a friend, if we see maybe some signs, can we jump in and intervene? What? How does the church and close friends make a difference here in preventing uh, affairs from starting? Well, I think close friends do two things. Uh, I think they can help prevent if you will be honest. I don't like the term accountability groups. I think they become very parental. And those that are holding you accountable become like a dad or a mom that you don't need anymore. I do like the term vulnerability groups where everybody in the group is equally open and vulnerable. It's not just a one-way relationship. The second thing I would say about friends is if you go through adultery, you do need to enlist a listening ear from somebody you trust will be confidential. You don't have to go tell everybody about this, but you need to be able to call someone in the middle of the night when you just feel like you're coming apart and you're just so angry about what's happened that you can call and just bend their ear for an hour if you need that. So church friends are huge in both the protection and uh, the recovery part of adultery and sexual betrayal. Dave, you and your wife have uh, spent uh, 51 years in uh, wedded bliss, get uh, four uh, children, adult children, so and they're, they've experienced the uh, joys of marriage. So what are uh, maybe what are you doing, uh, one thing that you do or one thing that you want to make sure you pass on to your kids about helping them build strong marriages and protect them from affairs? Well, you know, when you... Nail it down to just one thing. Uh, Your values are exposed by what you spend your money on. And I've always told my kids, spend money on your marriage. So it takes money to fuel a good marriage. Now, shared ministry helps. Obviously, your personal walk with Jesus is great, a big part of it. Uh, There's lots of contributing factors But if you just learn one thing from this today, don't take your marriage for granted. Spend money on your marriage. Create an environment where you can both be open and uh, listening to each other without anger and hostility and blame and everything else. It's a great first start is what I'd say. Yeah. 
Well, we'd love it, Dave, if you uh, if you ran out of work to do and and just had to retire and uh, and sit around. But uh, apparently, there's still uh, marriages that need saving. Uh, <laughs> we're going to see more and more of that with uh, internet ac- activity, sexting, uh, chat rooms. It, it's increasing. Th- this is the growth industry. Yeah, exactly. uh, we need some good people to step up and learn how to work with these couples because it's rampant. Well, uh, check out the resources available on uh, Dave's website, Dave Carter, with a D, DaveCarter.com. Dave's authored uh, some wonderful books, including the new one, Anatomy of an Affair, How Affairs, Attractions, and Addictions Develop, and How to Guard Your Marriage Against Them. We do have a copy to give away, and it would be a wonderful resource for someone that you know and care about. You can sign up for that uh, drawing here. We'll do that at the top of the hour at 877-933-2484, 877-93-FAITH. Dave, we really appreciate you, and I always look forward to the opportunity to chat. Thank you for coming back on the show again. Oh, I loved it. I always love talking about this stuff. <laughs> Dave Carter, pastor of Counseling Ministries, First Evangelical Free Church, Fulton, California. Check out the website, DaveCarter.com. And you're listening to Connecting Faith. Coming up in a moment, uh, we're going to reconnect with uh, Rick Matson again as we uh, talk about sharing our faith with others. And we'll get to some apologetics questions just ahead. to Connecting Faith, and today, we're again, we're going to get some practical approaches and lessons on how we can more effectively share our faith with friends and neighbors who may be skeptical, and no doubt we meet those more and more all the time. You know, how do we move from maybe thinking about sharing our faith to actually engaging? And Rick Matson has helped us along the way over a, a number of weeks as we've gotten together. He's an apologetics specialist for University Christian Fellowship. He's served as a staff worker for, you know, about 30-plus years now. He's author of Faith is Like Skydiving and other memorable images for dialogue with seekers and skeptics. Frequently speaks in college and university campuses across the country. He serves at Hamlin University in Minnesota. And Rick, we want to talk today a little bit about some important questions that you encounter and then maybe we've encountered as well. But maybe one of the first ones is in light of whether it's hurricanes or uh, terrible tragedies like uh, shootings or uh, protests in Charlottesville or wherever it might be, people wonder, you know, is why all the suffering? Is is life simply just random and anybody, it's just the uh, wrong place at the wrong times? Yeah, it's a broken world that we live in. And Christians would say that that's a result of the fall. Genesis 3 describes a time when Adam and Eve, our first parents, were in close uh, communion and relationship with God. And then they decided to turn their backs on God, and the whole world fell into disarray. It's a it's a broken world. I think the first thing we want to say, though, in light of uh, hurricanes, natural disasters, uh, shootings in Las Vegas recently, all these things, is that Christians need to exercise uh, mercy and compassion. It's uh, we need to be Christ to the world, His hands and His feet, but not just hands and feet, not just in service. That's really important, but I think in heart as well. We need to have uh, sympathy and not rush too quickly to the apologetic, to the philosophy, to the theology of all this, but to just be people who care and who serve and aren't so quick with the answers. I think eventually, though, people do ask the intellectual questions and want some answers, and then we can kind of dive into that. 
Well, of course, one of the questions I know that you encounter from time to time, and uh, I had a conversation with someone, uh, you know, it wasn't that many months ago. Basically, it's, what about those who have never heard? Does God send them to hell? Yeah. I think this gets back to whether or not we actually trust in God or we think we somehow know better. Sometimes <laughs> us Christians or people who are seeking the faith, we think that uh, God's judgments, God's mercy, God's character isn't just and that we somehow know better. We can compare God, the almighty creator of the universe, to some cultural standard or neighborhood standard that we have. And for Christians who are really committed to a biblical understanding of God, we go to the scripture and we go to Christian history and we see, well, who is this God that we serve? Can we trust in his love and his mercy and his justice? And, uh, of course, we see this demonstrated at the cross. His love and justice are fused together at the cross. And, and that's the God whose character we are trusting in. So when we ask the question, what of those who have never served, uh, never heard the gospel? Did they just go to hell? Uh, well, uh, we don't know exactly what happens to them. Uh, but I think the first thing to say is that we need to look to who God really is and to have trust in him. And um, as uh, David Clark here uh, at Bethel Seminary says in one of his books, God is doing things behind the scenes in their lives that we don't always know about. He might be sending dreams. He might be working on their hearts. He might be giving them uh, revelation in ways that we don't know about. So we shouldn't be too quick to uh, judge, I guess, what happens to them. But it is uh, it is an uncomfortable topic, isn't it? I mean, we, to try and get around that is like, well, to say I don't know feels somehow like we should have a better answer. Yeah. Well, uh, along those lines, Paul does say in Romans chapter 1 that the glories of God and nature are visible to everyone so that they are without excuse. So we shouldn't be too quick to just excuse people and say, oh, it's okay, they haven't heard the gospel, or they heard it once, and but not in a good way. And uh, I think people are responsible for the amount of light that they've been given. And Paul indicates in Romans 1 that we've been given that light through the revelation of nature. And in Romans 2, he indicates we've been given that light through the obligations felt by our conscience, that God has placed the law, his law on our hearts, and it affects our conscience. And we do have this sense of moral obligation and this uh, yearn toward uh, holiness, at least at our best moments. And, and Paul says that we need to pay attention to those and that if we don't, if our hearts are hardened, then we are without excuse. So that's kind of the tension and the uh, discomfort that you were just referencing. You know, there's another question that uh, often comes up, maybe an argument, is that, well, this is all just a matter of geography. I mean, isn't Christianity just a function of where we grew up? You know, if we were born in Saudi Arabia, we'd be Muslims instead. <laughs> How do you respond to that one? Yeah, well, that's possible. If Had I <laughs> been uh, born in Iraq or wherever, maybe I would be a, um, a Muslim person. But that doesn't actually change the truth of mm-hmm. Christ and Scripture uh, Christ and Scripture or the truth of Christianity is not a function of my belief. Um, if Christianity is really true, then it doesn't matter where I grew up mm. or what I believe. Uh, Christianity isn't true because I believe it or anyone else believes it. It's just true on its own merits. So at the end of the day, uh, the question is whether or not Christianity is actually true, mm. not whether I grew up in a Christian nation or grew up in a place that was mainly uh, Islamic. 
So how would we respond to, again, if, if we want to get off of that geography side to truth? I mean, are, are people willing to maybe make that transition or even consider that conversation? Yeah. If we can first make the case that truth is not a function of belief, in other mm-hmm. words, you can't make something true by believing it, if you can move from there to the question of, well, is Christianity true and how might it compare to Islam and the way that uh, Christian philosophers and theologians have answered that question is that there's a kind of cumulative case to be made for Christianity. It's the preponderance of evidence. We become these kind of theological lawyers, and we make our case from origins and uh, the design of the world. We make our case from the argument from morality. We make our case from the historic uh, Jesus, the evidence uh, for the Gospels, we make our case from experience. There's a whole variety of places that when you add them together, it's the cumulative effect of these of these arguments. And that's what a lawyer will do in a court of law. Uh, the lawyer will add together email records and motive and proximity and all these things. And on any one of those items, the judge or jury might say, yeah, so what? Uh, everyone was – lots of people were near this uh, event. But when you add things together, it's the cumulative effect. It's the converging lines of evidence from a variety of sources that becomes so convincing. And that's what we're trying to do with Christianity. If we're trying to show that it really is true, we bring together all these arguments together in kind of a giant puzzle. And when you add in all the pieces of the puzzle, that's when it becomes very compelling. I know over the you know weeks that we've gotten together, we talk often about you know making the case. But you often use questions to to help make the case. So it's not so much about sort of a preaching and teaching, and you know here's the way it really is. But maybe just uh, what would be some good questions for us to ask or help us to to make the case without uh, being dogmatic, perhaps? Yeah. Uh, well, with folks who are true skeptics, uh, the first question I want to ask is uh, how do they get on that journey? Mm-hmm. And that just tends to open up the dialogue in a more personal way and and then continue to ask questions about the specifics of that journey. A lot of times experience (laughs) goes before unbelief. So a person doesn't become a skeptic just intellectually by looking at the raw data. They often have negative experiences with uh, religion one way or another. And then along the way, I might ask the question, well, if Christianity... If, if it could be shown that it was really true and let's say atheism or naturalism or whatever the person's belief is, if that were false, would that make a difference to you? So now you're getting at the question of their intellectual integrity. Are they really willing to make a change if something better were shown to be true, if something else were shown to be true? And that can be a very revealing question because it shows whether or not the person is just putting up a intellectual smokescreen or if they're really committed to following the data wherever it leads. And there's a famous uh, philosopher of the 20th century, Antony Flew, and he was famous for always following the data wherever it led. And sure enough, late in life, somewhere around the year 2004, he actually came to believe in God. And he was this notorious atheist for decades uh, doing debates with the great philosophers of the world. But uh, he had the integrity to... Uh, follow the evidence where it led. But that simple question can be a turning point in a conversation. Are you willing to consider the evidence? And if it went the other way, would you go the other way? 
I hope that's uh, whet your appetite today to maybe to learn, to study more, to uh, pray more for those uh, friends, co-workers, neighbors that you know that that you might have a, a spiritual conversation and uh, get into a conversation about faith and discuss the, some of those big issues. You can uh, find out more about uh, Rick and his writings. He's author of Faith is Like Skydiving and other memorable images for dialogue with seekers and skeptics. He uh, serves at Hamlin University in Minnesota, but travels around the country at university campuses and colleges and does uh, church seminars as well. And you can connect with him at uh, rickmatsonoutreach.com. That's rickmatsonoutreach.com. Talking today here on Connecting Faith. Rick is a regular guest, and we look forward to having him back on again here sometime soon. Tomorrow, uh, Leith Anderson is back with us. Uh, he is a regular contributor. We'll, we'll talk about uh, issues of uh, culture and the church. One of the issues certainly in our culture today is the issue of domestic violence, sexual assault. And Justin Holcomb is our guest tomorrow as we talk about uh, domestic violence, sexual assaults, and uh, the church responding. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so I hope that you'll join us uh, tomorrow. And Ted, what a great conversation we had with uh, Dave Carter. Yeah, definitely. He just gives us great practical uh, wisdom and advice, anatomy of affair. If you missed part of it want to hear it again, pass it on to a friend. Invite you to go to our website, myfaithradio.com, and then click on the Connecting Faith show page. So we get the interviews posted there. Myfaithradio.com, click on Connecting Faith. Thanks for listening to this Connecting Faith podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Connecting Faith, you can subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the awareness and impact of Connecting Faith.